0: Alright, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck sticks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I'm broadcasting from a hotel in Atlanta, Georgia. I came down here Friday. It's been a harrowing few days, and I will tell you what's going on. Um, because I, uh, you're all part of it. You're part of the story. You're part of my life. Um, but before I, I kind of get into the thick of it, uh, I'd like to promote my tour. Is that okay? The 2020 tour dates that are now on sale. Uh, are these thursday january 30th in cleveland ohio at the agora theater friday january 31st grand rapids michigan at the fountain street church saturday february 1st milwaukee wisconsin at the turner hall ballroom friday february 14th orlando florida at hard rock live saturday february 15th tampa florida at the Straz center thursday february 20th portland maine state theater Thursday, February 21st, Providence, Rhode Island, Columbus Theater. Friday, February 22nd, New Haven, Connecticut at College Street Music Hall. And Sunday, February 23rd, Huntington, New York at the Paramount. You can go to wtfpod.com tour for links to all the venues. That's going to be a freezing tour. That's going to be exciting for me because... I have a lot of winter clothes that I'm never able to wear because I don't ski really anymore. And I don't live in a cold place. It's a stretch to have to wear a fucking sweater in Los Angeles. So now I'm going to have to pack big and uh, get out the gear, get out the boots, the warm jacket, layer up. I'm going to layer up. That's what I'm going to do. It'll be fun, except for Tampa and Orlando. I'm assuming they're not going to be freezing. Oddly a bit chilly down here in uh Atlanta, but I don't know the weather generally. I've uh as I said, I've been here since Friday. Today on the show I talked to uh Jay Roach, whose uh, new movie Bombshell is playing uh in a limited release. It opens this Friday, December twentieth. It's about Fox News, it's about Roger Ailes. I remember talking to um to John Lithgow when he was working on it. And uh, we had kind of a funny exchange about that, about uh, the depth of the monstrosity. He did a great job with it. Uh, but uh, there's no question, and we can make no exceptions, uh, Roger ale was a fucking demonic fuck who ruined the world. Did not bring good things. Did not bring good things. And he's the reason why we have a fairly well-oiled and functioning authoritarian state that is uh, really taken over half the country. And it's uh, and they're excited about it. They're happy about their dictator. Uh, their tribalism is 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 furious. And they would like uh, I would I would really think they'd like uh, Democrats dead or non-existent, not to mention other types of people. But uh, so, yeah, yeah. Right now, there's about a 47 percent of the country is living in a functioning authoritarian state, with much thanks to Roger Ailes. Now, we'll see if it it spreads. We don't know yet. And we don't know what that spreading will look like. It's not just going to be a, people going like, I guess it's okay. That'll be part of it. But I assume like any other authoritarian virus, the other part will be bloody. We'll see, right? Don't want to freak anybody out. Sorry, maybe I'm not in the right headspace. So I'll talk to Jay about that, about uh, his his life and his other movies, you know, he has been sort of doing more politically bent movies, but he also did uh, the meet the parents movies and, you know, but we'll talk about life, man. That's, that's what I do here. So I imagine some of, you know, because, um, I kind of put it out there on social media a bit that, uh, I, I, um, that La Fonda, my cat, who I've been talking about for the last week or two uh, is uh, no longer with us. I I I put uh, I put my cat down. I put my buddy down. I had to let go of my friend, of uh, you know, fifteen plus years. I I believe she was um, uh, my estimate around fifteen and a half years old. I picked her up out of the garbage uh, in Astoria. I wouldn't say I picked her up, uh, <laughs> but uh, but I found her and her siblings. Uh, eating Out of the Garbage Bins in Astoria, Queens in, um, I believe, I think it was probably around August of 2004. I was working at Air America. I remember it was the eve of or shortly before the Republican National Convention that we had to cover. And I, I know many of you know this story, but I think it's important on some level in talking about these particular cats in my life. They've obviously played a big part of my life but I don't know that some of you know the, the full depth of that in that the cats that I rescued from those from the alley behind my apartment in Astoria, Queens, really, I believe, helped define my, um, my, my radio personality and, and my style of radio and provided me with an outlet or with a focus uh, that really changed the nature of my voice on this type of mic and, uh, and got me going it was really two specific events that uh, shifted you know how I approached uh, the radio mic and uh, and what I offered of myself on that mic and which was the beginning of learning how to do it those two events were the the trapping of four kittens behind my uh, my apartment building—a story—and it's so funny. I've heard from so many people uh, from my past and people who know me uh, around LaFonda's death, and, and one of them was Jody Lennon, who lived in the building, and I believe still lives in the building with me. And she was there the night that I decided to trap these cats. And as some of you know, I just really wanted to help them out. I wanted some friends. I thought kittens would be fun. I had no idea that uh, once they're eating on their own and they're, and they're sort of uh, doing that thing, you, you know, solo acts, But they were all together and around, but they were out there in the wild eating on their own, which means they were feral. They were actively and essentially uh, wild animals. And LaFonda, who was the runt of that litter and a very small kind of beautiful Russian grayish tuxedo cat, uh, somehow in her scramble wound up stuck to a glue trap and was flopping around a wild fucking animal flopping around on my kitchen floor in a frenzy stuck to a fucking glue trap that I had to remove from her. And she was always to this day or to the day before I, I put her down, uh, well, actually, it kind of had gone away, but she was a a very reactive, defensive, you know, quick to pop you kind of tough cat. A little fist of feline fury was that Lafonda, and 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 she was tweaked mentally. They were all a little tweaked because they were feral, but I believe that Fonda was a little extra tweaked because that was her Vietnam, folks. That was her point of trauma. That was when it went down. That was what reconfigured her brain chemistry. Was getting stuck on that glue trap. And reluctantly, fighting every bit of the way, me having to take her off that and bloodying myself. I can't tell you the number of times that that cat bloodied the fuck out of me, either trying to put her into a cage or trying to help her out, biting, scratching. I wore leather gloves at the beginning. But it was during that period where I had those four cats in my house. Uh, I named them. One was Hissy. One was Meanie, One was Monkey. And LaFonda's name, I think, came later. But they were just wild animals. I would go to sleep and I, I would hear them out there and I didn't know what they were doing and I'd wake up and my entire uh, my entire apartment was destroyed and I didn't know what to do. So I started talking about them on the radio.
1: You know, I want to talk about the issues. I want to talk about being here, but I think it's important to let my listeners know that because of your coercion and your bullying tactics, I have taken four feral kittens into my apartment in Queens. Do you understand? I know this may not seem important. It may not seem the issues but this is the world I'm living in. I was living in a world of order and a world of discipline where I would go to sleep and wake up and come to work. No more. Four feral kittens. I don't even know what to do with Riley. I think that you should hold on to them. I think you should feed them um, solid white tuna. And that they'll like me? And they'll like you. They will love you. Remember now, they're feral. They have uh, seen nothing but abuse since the day they opened their eyes. Yeah. So now you've taken them in. They're going to be a little skittish at first. I don't think they they were abused. They were living out there in the wilderness behind my uh, apartment with their mother. And I swear to God, this one orange cat, literally, I let it out of the box. I trapped them. I, I made a box. I cut a hole in it out of food, and I trapped four of them. There's apparently one more kitten out there. I've got to get the mother into a, a cage and get her neutered. That's the ultimate project. But here, so I let this orange one out, Literally climbs up I had a window open about five inches climbs up into the screen it's locked itself in between the screen and the window with its claws in the screen wedged in there and I I realized something about me Mark Riley I wanted to help the cats but after three days I'm realizing this was all about me being loved because none of them They're behind the oven. They're under the couch. They will not love me. There's no kitty celebration of love going on. So what does that mean? You're going to put them back out in the street? I can't do that. I've now started making phone calls to figure out what to do with them. And did you know there's a whole underground network of 50-year-old women with money who do nothing but rescue cats? And and three of them are calling me. (sighs) I should, I, you know, that's rude. Why are they proposing marriage? I, they're doing the right thing. How do you know they're over fifty? I'm again making an assumption, okay? But I, I appreciate their help, and I don't know what I'm going to do with the cat. So let's move on to bigger things. It is amazing
0: that Brendan McDonald found that clip in buried somewhere in his computer or files or a hard drive. But that, what you just heard, that was me and my co-host Mark Riley from the show Morning Sedition on Air America. We were at uh, Madison Square Garden for day one of the Republican National Convention, which we were covering. And it's, you know, it's really something. I think I had trapped the cats maybe a few days before because that was, um, I think, August 30th, uh, 2004. And I think I trapped them on the 27th because Brendan remembers me calling him because he was out with friends and telling him that I did this. And I, and from that day on, you know, I continued to to give updates on the cats like every day. And it was me sharing that narrative about those cats that really started to engage me in the medium of radio. It was that and actually, uh, you know, burning a pot of lentils that I described with a certain weird passion uh, that really started me off in knowing that I was doing the right thing by by being on this type of platform, on this type of microphone, in this type of medium. It was thanks to those cats, for sure, for sure, no doubt. So eventually I tried to take Meanie across the street to the bodega, but I think he just re-entered the ecosystem. He was a very mean and crazy cat, very wild. Hissy was a black tuxedo long hair that actually I found a home for. I don't know if that cat is still alive. And I took Monkey and LaFonda, and... Uh, back to L.A. with me. And Monkey even made a trip back to New York with me once when I was back there again for work for a long period of time. But La Fonda, the one trip to, to L.A. was enough. And I write a big piece about that in Attempting Normal. I, I've had a lot of memories with this cat. These cats at my old house were once indoor/outdoor cats. Fonda did a lot of traveling. Used to hang out a few doors down. Dodged coyotes somehow. Uh, always came when I called them. Uh, there was just a lot of uh, a lot of people I've come in and out of my life. A lot of women I've been with in the in the past or relationships I've had have known this cat. Have had relationships with this cat. Uh, when I told Jody, when Jody heard um, uh, that I that I had to put her down. Uh, she said, so sorry to hear about Lafonda. What a life you gave that kitty. And I said, thanks, Jody. You were there when I trapped her with the shoe boxes. And she said, totally. You, you extended her life by at least 14.5 years. And she said, extra hugs for monkey and me, but everybody, you, you know, I, there was a, I had a roommate at the house that was very close to Lafonda." My friend Stosh, who some of you might remember from the beginning of the podcast, who used to live at the house with me and helped me out during the early years, she was very close to LaFonda, and I told her, and I hadn't talked to her in, in years, and, and we sort of reconnected and we we're going to have coffee, but it was very difficult. I'd never done it before, and I, and I was really dead set on not missing it in, in a weird way. Uh, I remember I had a cat named Butch that was a gift to me by my uh, second wife, Mishnah, um you know who had a heart problem a congenital heart problem and and she died when i was in new york and i missed that i missed burying her you know mishna buried her with uh ernie the handyman out in back of the old house as some of you know boomer disappeared uh many years ago what a great great cat boomer was deaf black cat got eaten by the coyotes and um scaredy cat uh yeah, the other stray was hit by a car out in front of my house. But uh, I just didn't, I was, you know, Monkey and LaFonda are, are my my old friends. You know, it's been over 15 years. And as you know, you know, Fonda was, um well, got sick, you know, about a month or so ago. She just, her health took a sharp turn. She lost a lot of weight. And I took her to the vet. And the vet, uh, you know, told me that she had a, Bladder infection, but her kidney numbers were horrible. They were all in the red and she was sort of on her way. And I said, well, what do we do? He said, well, you know, she's not, I don't think it's time, but you know, this is not good and you can give her subcutaneous fluids and, you know, do what you can to make her comfortable, but it's not good. And, and but you know, when you hear that as, as an owner of a cat, you, you're like, well, maybe she could just level off. I mean, I always knew she probably had bad kidneys. She drank an awful lot of water. And, you, you know, that had been going on for a while. I noticed that she had been losing a little weight, but, but he, he was like, just, you know, do what you can, you, you know, sometimes you can get another year out of them. You don't know. But the doc said, you know, look, if she starts throwing up or she starts getting diarrhea, that, then that's the time, you know? And, and then I was like, I still wasn't clear, you know, because I, I, you know, some people say, well, as long as she can, you know, accept love or give love or, you know, if she's conscious, you know, if she doesn't seem to be in pain. You know, why not keep her around? I thought, well, okay, she's getting a little loopy. She's old and got this kidney sickness, but maybe this is just who she is now. She lost most of her strength, most of her will. You know, but you hold on, you know, because she was still sleeping with me and, you know, we could touch her still. And uh, and she still seemed to like it, but she was very weak and losing energy. and And then like people, a couple of people said, you'll know. You'll know when it's time because she'll tell you, and I didn't really know what that meant. And and sure enough, like Thursday, you know, she just um, she just didn't stop, really stopped eating, you know, and, uh, and and threw up a little bit. And but she was acting b- bizarre, you know. She was drinking an awful lot of water, like she couldn't get enough water. And then she tried to, you know, she started to try to get in the toilet, and she st- was acting weird. And she tried to get in the bathtub and she shit in the shower and, and she was just crying and howling all the time. And, and she was doing weird sh- shit like trying. It was almost like, you know, when you're sick and you're just trying to make yourself feel better, you're looking for something that'll make you feel better. It felt like that just howling all the time. And she wouldn't eat and she wouldn't drink. And it was, you know, and, and, and I guess that's that what I, what I thought she was telling me. I thought she was telling me, you know, I was going to have the euthanasia at home stuff and, but I'm like, fuck it. I'm just I'm taking her to the vet because I want to know what's up. You know, she's howling all the time. She's in pain. She's not eating. She's not drinking. She threw up, and you know. But I knew what was going on. Her kidneys were gone. You know, and, and but I didn't want to accept it. And I kind of knew when I took her to the vet that I was not going to leave with her. You know, and and but I wanted him to see her. Yeah, I got a good vet over there at Gateway. This new guy over there, Doctor Modesto and Doctor Ram too. But Modesto, I, I he just I you know he was the one that diagnosed her, and I I, I was glad he was there. And I put her in the cage. She didn't fight at all. She was just limp, you know, and so fragile and so light. There was nothing to her, you, you know, and I and I was sort of like I was just waking out of this haze of trying to save her and really knowing in my heart that there, there was no saving her, you know. So I brought her in and he weighed her and she lost weight. She was like five pounds. And, um, and I said, should we do a kidney test? Maybe she's got the UTI again or the bladder infection. He's like, I don't know. And he looked in her eyes, and they were sunken. He said her, his, she had anemia. Her gums were white. And I told him what was going on. And I said I was doing the the, uh, the subcutaneous three days a week. And, and he's like, how can she be this dehydrated if you're giving her that much? And he conferred with the other doctors. And he just said, I think it's time. And I'm like, seriously, really? But I kind of knew, you know. I knew. I knew that it was. And I said, okay, okay. And he goes, well, you, you know, do you have, need a few minutes? I'm like, okay. You know, and Lynn came, and I, we were there. And, like, you, you know, I, t- I took some time. And I talked to the cat. And I apologized to the cat. And, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, this is the right thing. You know, and I know, you know, some of you are like, it's a fucking cat. It's a fucking cat. But, you know, this cat and I, you know, it's whatever, man. It's just, it was, you know. Had a lot of things with it, a lot of memories with this cat. Was you know, and 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 I knew it was the right thing to do. And he came back in. I said, he said, you don't have to. You want us? You want to be here? Do you? And I'm like, yes, yes. This is what I'm doing. You know, I want to be here. I want to like. I don't want her to feel abandoned or more freaked out than she already is. And he said, okay, we'll put a catheter on her and we'll come back in. So they did that and they came back in. And I was holding her you know, like she was laying on the table and they had the catheter and then the doc, it took him a long time to get the medicine. Cause they have one guy in the back handing out medicine, I guess. And he's got these two syringes and I was just holding my cat, you know, and Win was kind of holding me, but I, I was holding the cat and, um, you know, and I was just saying, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I'm sorry. I love you. You know? And, and, and I was concerned that, you know, the, The tears wouldn't come, you know, and they, uh, they definitely did. And he put the, um, the first one is a tranquilizer and it just shut her down, you know, just right, really, very quickly. And I go, she, she's out. Why are eyes open? Is she, she's just sleeping. What's happening? You know, and I was kind of panicking and crying and telling the cat it's Okay. And then I, and, and I go, we'll do the other one. Let's just do it, you know, let's just do it. And he did it, and it was very quick and very painless. And he just, you know, put this stethoscope, stethoscope on her and said she's gone, and I just was kind of crying and, you know, petting the cat, and she was gone. She was gone. And, uh, you know, that was that. So we hung out with her for a few minutes, and I, you know, I told them I wanted the ashes, and, you know, and they took her away and that was that you know and uh, and i was you know i was the guy you know i was the crying man leaving the the vet's office you know with an empty carrier you know that was me and i i tell you y- y- you know some people feel guilty and or that they waited too long i i just feel like it was the right thing to do at the right time at the right moment I was glad I could do it for her, and uh, I was glad to be there for it. It was, it was terrible and beautiful. You know, it was, it was really, you know, it really fucked, it, it fucked me up, but I, I just, uh, you know, she was at peace, you know, you know I was at peace, because at some point, you know, both of your quality of life, you know, the cats and yours are deteriorating when you're desperately trying to keep them alive. And she didn't suffer too much. Whatever the discomfort was, it was the beginning of it. And the doc thinks that her kidneys just went. And that was the end of it. So, you know, RIP La Fonda. And I was happy to be there. And, I, and uh, you know, I, and she had a good life. So that's that. And I thank all you for being supportive and for all the outreach and for the recommendations of how to handle this and, you know, how to do a home uh, euthanasia and what to do and, you know, different approaches to the kidney. Th- I, thanks for all of your input. So, Jay Roach, good guy. He's made some funny movies. But uh, this bombshell movie is something. Uh, it really is. And, and some amazing acting and it's an amazing story. And there's a scene in there where I think, you know, with uh, Margot Robbie and john lithgow if you really wonder how abusive power affects somebody affects a woman in a situation where there's not even sexual contact there's a scene in this movie that will, will hammer that point into you and it's it's really something else and the movie's good and this is me talking to jay roach back in the uh, house <laughs> So Jay, you rode, you rode a bike over here. How long you How
2: long you ridden a bike? I've been riding motorcycles since I was a kid. Uh, really? I don't know if you. Your dad wet you? He did, but only on the dirt. Uh, I, dirt lived in, I grew up in Albuquerque. I know.
0: I mean, I, 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 did I ran into you and you tell me that? Yeah. Okay. When,
2: and I remember I was listening to you and Mike Judge. Oh yeah. Talk about your youth. And I was like, wait a second. Yeah. I, it's, I, that's my youth. Like, I was amazed how many similarities. Just the. How much are you older than me? How old are you? I'm 62. So I'm 56. Yeah. You were there. You were. I went to Highland, right? I went to Highland, graduated in 81. Yeah, I graduated in '75 from El Dorado. Yeah,
0: so <laughs> oh, you remember, man?
2: Oh, the whole thing—just the yeah. cruising around, nowhere to go, McDonald's. doing, doing donuts out in the dirt—and <laughs> and, and <laughs> my my thing was the motorcycle. I just had a dirt bike, and I just was—it it was in my garage being taken apart more than it was being ridden. Oh yeah. But, uh, but I I would get out on that bike, and my dad wouldn't let me run in the street, so. I got a street bike finally when I went away to college, and and I haven't stopped. I did stop when I had kids, and I kind of parked it for quite a while. And then- Out of uh, fear or what? Out of my wife's, uh, the look on my wife's face every time I would yeah. come back. She's like, she wanted you, you know, like, yeah. what, what are you doing? You, yeah. you're too, way too old, and you're, you know, you should be responsible. You have a family now. And and that's
0: coming from an old rocker.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know what's your wife's name again? Susanna Hoffs from yeah. the Bangles. The
0: Bangles. Yeah, they didn't get as fucked up as the Go Go's, though, did they?
2: Uh, I don't think so. She's pretty, uh, she's, she's got some stories. Oh she's yeah, she got yeah? some good stories, yeah. yeah, but I don't, I don't know. Did she know. write Walk Like an Egyptian? She did not. Uh, she wrote Eternal Flame. Oh yeah. Um, but, she, and Prince wrote Manic Monday, and those are sort oh, of their big, the big hits. hits. Yeah. I
0: like that, the song on the first album, Live.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's I love that with song. the Pearsons mostly doing the singing, yeah. yeah. Vicky and Debbie. Yeah. I like the lick. Yeah, yeah, it's a good lick in yeah. there, right? Yeah, I you, you would catch that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, Ricky's a good guitar player.
0: So, all right, so Albuquerque, though, in the 70s, the general store. Did you go to the general store Is over that, by university, the university? Yeah, head by, shop? down by the campus. Yeah, yeah the yeah. poster frontier, and the frontier man. Yeah,
2: that's I we used to hang out there all the time. My friend was uh later and while he was in college, would. would perform at Civic Light Opera all the time Pope Joy Hall you know yeah do so we would go he was a he was a song and dance man you know, oh really the, he now he's a lawyer there you do uh, musicals
0: and stuff was no, your friend he's a lawyer now yeah Chris
2: Pierce yeah oh yeah I might have you know been gone by the time some of the stuff you guys went through but I just sounded like it hadn't changed that much when by did the time you get either. out of there 75 you were out by 75 yeah yeah Where'd you go? I went to Stanford. I got. I, I. had lived, I was born and raised in Albuquerque, lived there my whole wow, life. Really? Never left, you know, until really? I got on a train and Where'd went you, to What Stanford. part of town did you grow up in Albuquerque? I grew up uh, up by Lomas and Candelaria. What'd your dad do? What were you doing? My dad worked for the Defense Department. Um, he worked at Sandia, you know. Um, Sandia like Labs. A lot of people do at Sandia yeah. Labs, which was affiliated with... Los Alamos, Los Alamos and La- Lawrence Livermore, and he he was a bomb builder. You know, he no built, shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's like an engineer or like a mechanical engineer. He was like involved, and in, he would go underground in Vegas in the you know Nevada test site, install a device that would read the force of the blasts, oh, yeah. and and then go back in after the blast and come and then come back. So to, was he up in Los Alamos a lot? No, he. It was mostly just Sandia and the Nevada test site. But he was, you know, radiated a bunch of times. We, we had a whole. There's a whole story about what my dad went through to, uh, you know, to build hydrogen bombs. Right, uh, wait, like the original ones? No, like in late fifties through the sixties and all. I think I don't remember. He sort of retired. Um, Wasn't like, it like? Was
0: did he go into the mountain? Wasn't there a hollowed out mountain? He, like he,
2: in that hollowed out mountain is. Uh, on the property of Sandia, you know, it's right. on the Federal Reserve there, and it's in Albuquerque, it's a right? Big outside. bunker full of nuclear stuff. You know, you fly over it's it real. It's real, and there's like three fences that you know. My friends used to hunt around that mountain, and once yeah. when I was a kid, we were sitting at a um, one of those diners down along the freeway and looked up, and a plane crashed into that mountain, and everyone was afraid for a little while, like the whole. Place was just going to turn into a nuclear really? mushroom. Oh yeah, yeah, and some a, a fair number of soldiers died. I think it was like a C one hundred and thirty or something that crashed, and we saw the plane hit. It was always a, it was that mountain was such a mysterious, weird uh, kind of oh, monument I mean, to, to nuclear activity. But
0: like, like this was all sort of like mythic.
2: Yeah, but your old man mean. told you about it eventually. Well, he could talk a lot about some of it once it was declassified. Once the Cold War was over, which he takes credit for ending. You oh, Jesse, <laughs> <laughs> with uh, with Ronald Reagan, you know, he, he and Reagan uh, pretty much. Uh, what does he say? We we brought down the Russian yeah. bear or something. Were they, were they buddies? Yeah, not really. He was. My dad was. Um, my dad worked his way up from really from nothing. He didn't go to college. Yeah. and he drew. He just drew, and they hired him as a draftsman. And huh. He taught himself to to draw mechanical drawings and they and then he just kept the, he actually turned himself into a full fledged mechanical engineer without a college degree, which is pretty impressive. That's crazy. What did your yeah. mom do? She was uh she was a housewife. She had, you know, with her four little kids by the time she was very you know, like twenty four twenty five, she was uh, yeah. a handful. And then uh, after I left she became the administrative assistant at the high school where I went, Eldorado High School. Eldorado High. Yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about Eldorado. <laughs> it was well, it was a brand new school when kind I went there. Kind of remember where it is. It was brand new. You yeah. know, Highland had been around forever, and Highland was always our big uh, rival. rival, the yeah, Hornets, because they Eldorado always had a good football team. We had terrible basketball teams, but really good football teams, and and Highland was always the yeah. When we after a basketball game with Highland one time, yeah. my my best friend Chris and I actually were standing around outside and and. Everyone used to be so many fights after games. That's all people knew what to do. And we got just, we got literally just knocked over and kicked for a while. wasn't, we weren't injured, but... It was just I was looking back. Like, my, there's a lot of stuff that went on that uh, you know was vaguely traumatic, which you probably didn't even we didn't probably even uh, recognize. I didn't get involved
0: with sports much, but driving around. I mean, you got your driver's license when you were 15, 14, eight 14, months. eight months for the yeah, learner's yeah. permit. That's when I got mine. Yeah, and I mean, it's like, what are you going to do? And then half <laughs> of it, you know, most of the people have guns out there, yeah, you know, and they're just riding around, dicking off, oh, drinking, sure. getting people to buy you booze. Outside of a fucking liquor store,
2: you got the same fake ID we got. That thing where you yeah, they blow up, up a big picture and stand idea, behind yeah. it, and somebody uh, takes, it takes a Polaroid picture. and cuts it out. I, literally, I was listening to you guys talk about your experiences. I was like, is that just is that just like it's just been going on there for decades? Well, they, and didn't, decades.
0: they Well, they. I guess it's like they didn't make the they didn't secure the. the how do you like that coffee? Sorry that's excellent oh, thank good. you they didn't secure the identification like they added all kinds of different things on it with the light but back in the old days you could re- it was pretty easy to fake them
2: i was your school good did you go do mm-hmm. you feel because i was actually i was thinking about this the other day that my public school was yeah. like a good you know testament to the quality of public school the teachers were good and i i you know i, I feel like i lucked out for because i talked to a lot of people in some of the other schools there in fact one of my friends is a principal at element as an elementary school there now and uh, people don't see it as such a great school system in New Mexico, but I I felt lucky. I must have gotten- I think if you're lucky, right if
0: you are if you lock in with teachers, if they, yeah, I don't know, like there was a couple of teachers that were pretty horrible. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of drunks. My electronics teacher, he was kind of a drunky guy, and my English teacher was kind of a little off. But then there was another English teacher that I really connected with and the history teacher yeah. I connected with. And then when I didn't, it's really a crapshoot. But they built this amazing state-of-the-art art department over at uh, Highland mm-hmm. in, in my last year. Mm-hmm. And they had this you know, full high-tech darkroom. And oh, it was like, yeah, it was, yeah. I just was, it was crazy. So I was
2: really kind of in the dark room the last year or so. But uh, that's what happened to me at college. It's funny you say that too. I, I was pre-law studying economics, and I found out there was a dark room in the basement of my dorm senior year, uh-huh. and that was it. That was the end of that's, pre-law. <laughs> I just like started shooting pictures, decided I was going to be a camera person, and then well, that's interesting. So yeah.
0: okay, so wait, are you the youngest of your siblings?
2: I'm the oldest. Oh, you are. Yeah. Where's everybody else? Anyone still in Albuquerque? <laughs> Uh, my dad's still there. He's still around. And my mom's around too, but she's in, uh, they're both in assisted living, but different parts of, my mom's in Southern Colorado. and um, So they weren't married? They were married. They've stayed married all this time. And it just, the health reasons and oh, the doctors and huh. stuff ended up, they just were in separate places. Uh, and they are now. And uh, my brother is- That's uh, difficult. Are they both cognizant? Yeah, yeah. And they're they are actually supportive of each other from uh-huh. afar. They kind of have a funny long distance I've you never know, heard that before. Really. I know it's 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 interesting. Um, my mom has uh, sort of, she sort of has a, a kind of specific type of immune system thing and uh-huh. she just gets better care up there. In, and in your his dad didn't place. want to leave Albuquerque? He did want to leave. He has this great house uh, huh. looking up at the Sandias, uh-huh. you know, uh, up off of Tramway. And he just- Do you know, they just FaceTime? Like, they Facetime a lot. They Facetime. <laughs> they Facetime accidentally a lot. I'll get buzzed, you know. They that Facetime is <laughs> is a really uh, great thing for grandparents. And, and your
0: and your your siblings, none of ones in Albuquerque. Uh,
2: none of them. The other one is uh, one. My next bro- brother down is uh, a pack train guide yeah. in uh, Wyoming. Has huh. always been like a wrangler of some sort up there. Uh, he's a cowboy. I... And my my other brother's a truck driver. And uh, really, yeah, my we grew up in a kind of Texas rancher. Uh, household. My dad was in the suburbs, but had grown up in you know, out in the very rural Texas, you know, and still thought of himself as a cowboy. Huh. Um, and so all my, so, well, at least my two brothers, became very, very outdoorsy. Your dad, and,
0: your your brother rides rides horses.
2: Yeah, and, yeah, and, in, and well, outside of Yellowstone, he leads. You know, uh-huh. I mean, now he's leading National Geographic. Scientist in to study wolves or something. He's got a really cool life, uh, you know. And like he's
0: a tracker or something. He's
2: like he tracks them and huh. he knows. Uh, you know, I, I once went mountain biking with him back in there. He does that too tours and he like has to carry a. 44 Magnum. Where's that and documentary, Jay? <laughs> yeah. That's Where's what I should Where's the talk about on. your brother? Yeah, uh, he's great. He's amazing actually. And then the other one's a truck driver, truck driver, and then there's another one. My sister is uh, you know, uh she just moved to southern Colorado to be closer to my mom, but she's been a paralegal and huh. real estate lady. she's done a bunch of different things.
0: It's crazy and you're a film director.
2: Yeah, I was the I was always the weird kid uh f- because everyone uh, my family would just, you know, just working people and uh k- as i said my dad we, we were sort of raised in a lower middle class yeah. environment and uh i just had a i don't know i got i was i was sort of driven i was a little type a you know and running around your motorcycle on my motorcycle motorcycle to get away from it all but uh i was also you know very uh focused student a lot of you student you, government stuff oh really of, oh yeah in, yeah I was in high school in high school yeah uh-huh. and um and sport. I was trying to do everything. I mean, it's been kind of a, 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 it's a bit of a problem. It's just been it's just, you know so scattered and interested and curious about everything. So it's actually. Well, been, you must uh,
0: have done well in school to get into Stanford.
2: I I did okay, but when I got to Stanford, I realized I think they just let me in because no one else applied from New Mexico because uh, they they really actually have a, a, a they a like quota? a map that seems yeah uh-huh. it seems like they represent all fifty states. Uh-huh. Um, so I think it was a regional affirmative action. Really? Because <laughs> I, I didn't have great. I had really good grades and good uh, uh, you know sort of student resume or whatever but I my a, my SAT scores were not not, not great s- not strong and so when you and got I got out- there and everybody was like perfect 800s and whatever and I was like oh man I, I'm out of my league here and I had to hustle but to It's a good survive. school man
0: I mean it's like it seemed and so it's the mid 70s so things are pretty groovy
2: yeah. still. Very groovy, uh, you know, post-sexual liberation, yeah. pre-pre-AIDS. So it was that there was a that, crazy the, that was the pocket. <laughs> that was the pocket. <laughs> the
0: post-sexual revolutions, pre-AIDS pocket. Good times. There was
2: a lot of uh, a lot of uh, exploring uh, yeah. going on. And Drugs. For me, as a kid, from coming from Albuquerque, just into a big, you know, a, a sort of sophisticated coastal place like that. Yeah, uh, was uh, I was very out of. My element for a long time there, and I was always sort of trying to just catch up. Drug guy, uh, I did. not I smoked a fair amount of marijuana. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I didn't. I, I wasn't so much into much else. I, be you know, I would drink beer with my friends there. Right. But I was never. I was never. Um, I, I just. I didn't love the. You know, the, I didn't join a frat or anything like that. And That's I wasn't. Good. A, I wasn't. I didn't. <laughs> that get doesn't caught end up well that, for so. anybody.
0: It seems like most of the people you talk to though were in frats. You. Almost always, 99% of the time, you go like, nah, I can see that, you know I mean? yeah.
2: But I But I could've, I was tempted just because I love to play basketball and you know, right. the, the sports part. But what stopped sports. you, Jay? I had living with dudes. Yeah. <laughs> I I liked I lived in a co-ed dorm. They didn't let you think about it in freshman year and so uh, living in with just cool women it was uh, it was also an interesting time for the women's liberation movement, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot I had, I had a lot of very strong cool women who were, you know, asking a lot of questions and pu- pushing things and mm-hmm. I, and I I uh, growing up the way I grew up in a pretty male, you know, be 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 a strong man and yeah. all that Stuff, you know, from the Texas Rantor mentality, yeah. which is, you know, there's a certain nobility in it. But I, I know, I, you know, I started kind of drifting politically away from some of my dad's mm-hmm. ideas. And uh, I'm actually working now on a, a Kent State uh, thing to try to do um, a limited series about that week, you know. Uh, really? Yeah, um, with Tina Fey's company, actually, because her husband, Jeff Richmond, uh, lived at Kent at the time. But I remember that, 1970, 13 years old. At the time of the, of the Yeah. But was he... At the time of the shootings in 1970. Yeah. But his was, family was there? He was a kid, was he he was a a kid, kid. Yeah. yeah. He goes to school later there, too, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he definitely was there when he was 10 years I old. I talked to uh, Mark Mothersbaugh about yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I just met his yeah. wife. It's, Night before last, yeah. I said, You got to talk to Mark. Yeah. And um, he was like there, there. He was there, there. And so Joe was Joe Walsh. Walsh. Yeah. Yeah, I talked yeah. to Joe Walsh about yeah. it too. We've talked to Joe too. And it's a really compelling story. There's so much more to it than you just know from well, the song or the photograph. Oh, or, yeah, you know, no, um, like you don't get anything like that. The yeah. whole town was in, like they called in the fucking tanks. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and it was a four day process that led up to the Monday when they. When they shot the kids. And well, that uh, sounds very compelling. You can oh, what? Yeah. Like, what do you think in six episodes? Five, six episodes. You know what made me think we were trying to do it as a feature, and yeah. then I saw Chernobyl, and I was like, you could tell this story like a meltdown of a system, you know, uh, and and try to analyze all the different forces that uh, end up with kids carrying rifles with live ammunition who are avoiding the war by being in the National Guard, shooting other kids who are you know protesting the war in just an just inexplicable series of fuck-ups, you know, that led to this this uh, clash, you know. And then what happens after they shoot them, and this is where the really compelling story, is they're, they're know, the whole campus has gone nuts and he yeah. finds out about it, and there, there's like, suddenly went from like three or four hundred protesters yeah. to thousands of them, and they the National Guard is reloading right. to go back in and clear yeah. them out. And the story of this one professor who avoided, it could have... As the semi chalice is working on it with us, you said, you know, the thing about this is not that it happened, but that it could have. There could have been a lot more people killed afterwards. Is really the powerful story. Well, after I think the like the, the whole town got involved. Absolutely, it started in the in the town. It started on Friday night after Nixon said they were going into Cambodia. You know, uh, that there was a riot in the in the town, and there was a town gown tension all the yeah. time. Anyway, so, right, so. Anyway, it's a really compelling story, and uh, but it, but the reason I brought it up is that that's when uh, I remember my dad saying, "I feel like the students might have deserved that." you know, and that was a, that was sixty percent of America thought they did polls that blamed the students for what happened. Huh. and most of the, it was the students that were indicted first not the guard and uh until the more and more photo evidence came out and then there was a, a big thing sounds like you're pretty a, deep into the process oh uh, we? we've interviewed a ton of people and and it's going
0: to be like oh is it going to be a documentary type of situation? no no more
2: like a docudrama more like chernobyl did you see that no i didn't watch oh, it yet. so good be careful with the costumes <laughs> oh yeah good point it's the 70s clothes or to to not have them look goofy Tricky. wow <laughs> having having uh, i could show you pictures that would be uh I, from 1970 i, I know be, i
0: mean they look so cool but it's uh, for some reason it's so some hard of,
2: some of them do you know uh, it's but so
0: hard th- to to get it right you know uh when you're fictionalizing it absolutely so how do you get you know you started stanford in pre-law and like what i mean you know you direct big movies i mean and I, it seemed like you Kind of come out of nowhere in a way. And I was late. I was late to that. What have you been game. doing, man? So you, you you're <laughs> in college, but you said that you started doing photography out of yeah, nowhere. Yeah, I
2: started doing photography and uh, uh, was working there in a right at the beginning of Silicon Valley, really during the um, you know during the the he graduated late 70s, in '79. Yeah, and worked there for two years, running a, an instructional television thing for the School of Engineering at Stanford that was beaming. To, out to Hewlett-Packard. Wait, and,
0: after you graduate? Yeah, after I graduated. But where I mean, did
2: you have experience working in television? Just these, I worked my way through school. I had to have all these work-study jobs and, uh, I, and I, one of them one of was, was running these little classrooms where you'd have three cameras in a booth and joysticks and a little yeah. switcher and just c- kind of capture and record the professor's class but beam it th- out to these remote uh, Silicon Valley c- uh, companies where you, so you could get a master's degree or a Ph.D., in electrical engineering, while you're being employed at oh, oh, Hewlett Packard so or Ampac, was, or was that
0: a service offered by the school, or is it school. something that the, the Silicon Valley school wired of engineering
2: at? set it up ah. to sort of sort of hub out? So that's how a huge part of how Silicon Valley uh, got educated, l- networked itself, yeah, yeah, and 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 got educated. Um, it was a big part of that, actually. So I worked there, and they let me shoot some. Documentaries, and I applied to USC Film School. You shot some documentaries in uh, B- when you... little tiny short films, you know, and um, for, the, so this is after college for two years. For two years in Palo Alto, you know, living sure. in Palo Alto, and uh, but working on campus, um, and uh, not really sure what I was going to do. But I got to, I was, I had so many work study jobs, like I was cleaning sound heads in the documentary program. I yeah. met, I met some cool documentary uh, camera yeah. people, and thought, I'm going to apply to film school. So I applied to USC and um, got in there and then helped them run their – they had a similar kind of engineering school network. And so I worked my way through USC doing more of that, which right, is a weird way to Setting up these – uh, um, cor- Classrooms and doing these uh, engineering courses. Huh. You know. It's uh, so
0: weird because there's no internet. This sounds like, why would anyone do that? But that, back then it was sort <laughs> it of was like a,
2: a – an amazing thing, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was like a one-way Facetime, actually, because you could see the professor, but you could then there was two-way audio, so you could punch push a button and get right into the classroom with a question. So oh, you'd I see. always hear the off-campus people calling. Wild, and this is your beginning. Well, it was a way, it was a job, you know, and and it, but it had a, and a, it got, a then, camera component to it. But you
0: got you through USC
2: though. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. Like, and then I then I did I took you know started getting the the. Uh, directing bug at us i went there to be a camera person but it's a narrative narrative storytelling thing because of george lucas and john millius and all those people who had been there yeah and so i got the directing bug directed a a couple short films it's a three-year program it was an interesting five years of my life because i couldn't i couldn't afford to keep going but i so i'd stop out go back stop out and then i didn't really get to direct for 10 more years after that what the fuck were you doing Jay I was shooting documentaries actually and being a writing assistant and being an where at all around town and teaching I taught I taught cinematography at SC for 7 years part time at cinema at at USC you taught Uh,
0: cinematography they hired
2: me right out of school to teach which was just how did that happen were you that good I was a TA for a long time and I took over for a professor who you know needed some help and I, you know, I liked I liked shooting and t- and showing other people how to shoot, you know, and it was uh it would that was a great prep for directing because I would ask the students to set up a a little scenario and yeah. build a, a couple walls of sets and light them and shoot them and and just edit in camera every uh-huh. ni- every Wednesday night, you know, they would come into the little studio there and uh, and it actually helped me think more about how to shoot and edit by talking about it to kids and, um, and who,
0: how, what were some of your first jobs in
2: show business I got I was a writing assistant for a lot of that time where through a, uh, a company called Trilogy Entertainment that mm. um, so they made Blown Away and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves and kind of uh-huh. mainstream uh-huh. actiony stuff and they started letting me write scenes I wrote the story for Blown Away the bomb squad thing with Jeff Bridges and uh, I wrote a a pilot for a sci-fi show that was terrible ultimately, sadly, but it had some promise at the time across uh-huh. Space Rangers. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I started just getting permission to keep writing more and more and I actually turned myself into a writer. And then uh, I did some weird art films, including one film about the psychology of evil with Adolf Hitler... As the <laughs> the weird stylized, I was watching Jojo Rabbit the other yeah. night. It's such a good film! It is good. And uh, I was thinking back on this time, and I I st- was doing a ton of research on, you know, the rise of Nazism. Weirdly, and uh, and I around this time I met Mike Myers, and he is a history nut and we started talking about that and then he sent me we also started talking about monty python he yeah. sends me that script and that's when i finally Which got script? to start um, austin powers and that's when i finally got to start directing what movies. were these docs though so i i shot uh documentaries that were i i would shoot like industrial documentaries uh-huh. and even actually some for the air force i shot like footage of f-16s and a-10s and I would just get any job I could get. I was just a working person. I was not, I, I was always just, I lived in one room in a seven room house with six other people. You know, I was, I was like a grad student for 15 years basically uh-huh. <laughs> until yeah. I met Mike and uh, and got to do Austin Powers. So I had a weird, very weird eclectic So what was that trend. like,
0: I mean, but like you just, you just, so you had all this stuff
2: you did and, but you know, when you meet with Mike, how'd you meet Mike? We started talking about we. are he had a guitar that my it was a signature Rickenbacker Susanna Hoff's guitar. <laughs> he walked up to Susanna, got to know her. She and uh, his wife at the time, uh, Robin Roseanne, got to be friends. And Mike and I just started talking about history and and you were just this guy I'm that, just this like, guy literally just who this guy. does these weird little jobs, kind yeah. of in the show business. No promise whatsoever. It's a pretty amazing story because he. Um, he, we talked so much about, and you're these already things. married. Uh, yeah, had been just married for a couple years. Um, and so uh, she loved you, even though you didn't look like you were going anywhere. Oh, I was. We <laughs> met on a blind date. I was a, a, I had a old VW bus that would catch on fire about every third time we wow, drove Wow, man. I a, and I, she just, she had said, "I'm just." I should dated a lot of actors and you know musicians and uh somehow she said to the guy who was actually working with me on space rangers do you know anybody and he'd worked with her and so he he put us together and i i literally thought it was a prank like i just was she already she was a big star? oh she was huge she the bangles had already had you know all their that biggest records yeah two was, records. this, this was in 91 they were biggest in the mid 80s you know yeah um, so um yeah so we we uh sh- she sort of helped get me together with Mike Myers and, um, he got me to write up some notes about the, the the script. And after that said, we helped me look for directors and I was combing through other people's directing reels. Uh And I found a guy I liked and said, Oh, you should go with this guy. This is after Wayne's world. Uh, Ax Murder, Wayne's World Two was after all those films, yeah. and he was sort of looking for someone that he could sort of just collaborate a little more closely right. with, that instead of just someone who would just kind of direct him and push him around. But you didn't
0: have any; you couldn't really show him any real directing. No, nothing. Experience.
2: In fact, he, when I when he took me into New Line Cinema, and you know Suzanne Todd, the producers that I had known yeah. since, since film school also were very involved in this. And they, he and and my wife and the Todd sisters had put me up for the job without telling me and said, we want Michael thinks this guy would do it, based on this 12 page yeah. notes document I wrote that had some, a lot of jokes in it. And yeah, and uh, so I sat with the studio people cause I, I said, I said, here's the guy. And he said, well, I put you up for, it. I said, what are you talking about? I don't have any background. And that's what the studio guy said. He said, who are you? We're not going to just <laughs> hire Mike's buddy. You're not funny. You don't have any, you haven't directed anything. And I said, Mr. Shea, Mr. Bob Shea, at the yeah. time, I said I totally get that, but will you take a look at the storyboard sequence? And I had worked out this whole thing with the Fembots um, yeah. that hadn't been in the original script, yeah. you know, and and it was really funny. It was, right. I must say, it was a great thing. And I got a storyboard artist, that, and I, I was acting it all out. Yeah. And Mike kind of helped me perform it with him. And they hired me to do it, and they actually didn't right away. Mike had to say they finally said we're not going to hire this guy, and you, and he said I tell you what don't call me anymore unless you hire this guy. And they were sending him like big time directors. This is he Mike? Just, this is Mike. And he went to bat for you? He went to bat for me and it took a few more weeks and he called me, he had, he had just jumped into the swimming pool with his dogs, you could hear, with all his clothes on, his wife told me the story. And he called me and I could hear this crazy racket in the background, dark, splashing and barking. And, yeah. And he said, you got the job. You got the job. And he, it was, you know, uh, and he, so him plus the Todd sisters, I have to credit them too because they really helped too. But Mike freaking fought like a crazy person. And at the time with not the most power in the world, you know, the, those, the first film, the first Wayne's World was huge. Yeah. And the, the, but he was... He was an actor and, you know, but just fighting like crazy for me. And, uh, he and got then he became guy. his guy there for a yeah. while. Yeah. You're the
0: Austin Powers guy.
2: Yeah, I did. Uh...
0: And he's like notoriously a control freak. And I, you know, I've talked to him, but he's not easy.
2: Right. He was, he's, Cares a lot about what he's doing, and and I think What's, that gets misunderstood sometimes as being difficult because he just he yeah, just I fights mean, like crazy. See, I didn't what, get the sense. Do he, I don't know him to be difficult, but I mean, you know, you must have learned a lot on, on oh. some level and, because and, he wants it his way, right? He, I feel like I learned comedy uh, working with him. I didn't really, I honestly didn't know that much about how. To, I didn't know comedians. Uh-huh. I had only written. I'd written screenplays by then, and all serious, all either right. sci-fi, right. Or, um, but I, we I, big sci-fi I, freak? Not not a freak, but I was, you know, I read Dune and all the Heinlein stuff and yeah. all that, you know. I, 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 but I wrote in science fiction. Huh. Um, I got to do some sci-fi adaptions for like Bruce Willis and, uh, and so, what but it just mean? there just I, wasn't you adapt a, for Bruce Willis. Uh, uh, I did nothing that got made. A, a, a weird book called uh, Ambient, uh-huh. and uh, I adapted it for Bruce. It was about a post-apocalyptic world Manhattan that's been flooded and you can only um get to the different skyscrapers which are now like castles through bridges across the tops of them and uh-huh. Bruce plays a played a would would have played a bodyguard so whenever you went down into the no man's land he would be the guy who would escort the Sure, the, uh, the warlords or the right. or the pharmaceutical you need that guy control. Yeah, yeah and, and <laughs> it was a great concept. But I'm, but
0: so when you say you did it, you adapted it for him, you were hired by his company yeah.
2: through uh, again the Suzanne and Jennifer Todd, who I'd known in film school, were producers for him. And um, I, I, I I I'm pretty. I like telling stories, so I would go in and do this tap yeah. dance of pitching something, and I could often convince people I'm pretty. You know, gung ho about those kinds of stories when it's something I really loved. And he he said, okay, and I'll try it. And he really liked the script, but it never it was it was expensive, and and uh, I never really I don't think I nailed the third act, uh-huh. you know, so I never got to make it. But um, but that's how you know that's the kind of stuff I had been doing right before I met Mike, and no no comedy <laughs> in it whatsoever. And so getting I really learned. Mike is kind of an encyclopedia of comedy. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever talked to him about how he, he's got a very worked out sense of what's funny, why it's funny. He, from, from working with Lauren yeah. uh, a lot, from working with uh, Del Close, from from right. um, really studying comedy. He's a, he's a genuinely serious student of comedy. I, yeah. I wish he would either like do a master class or write a book about it because he, I don't think I've ever spoken to anybody who articulates um, I, just the considerations, the, the 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 things that make something funny. What'd you and learn usually, from you them? can kill kill comedy by sure. talking about it too much. But, uh, you know, some some things like, um, the the power of of clear setup. You know, making yeah. sure uh, everything is not. Fuzzed or the camera's not moving at the wrong time and and it's all you know just the power of uh, of, of making sure that by the time the the comedy is to be delivered, and yeah that's too mechanical a way to say, right. but that there's no there's nothing that could get in its way and that right. sounds so simplistic, but it was you'd be surprised how many especially in previews you'd find oh the reason this didn't work is because you know that. Sign that was yeah it right. got, somehow got in the way muffled. Sorry, and also, sorry. just the power of distracted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Things can kill jokes, and that, then yeah, and m- music look, can kill jokes or whatever. It could be anything. Right. And just it's and really was, like the way to avoid messing. And I'm sure it's partly just because he would know what was funny and just like don't don't have something uh, as part of this that could get could sort of uh, and those and, and, and those movies are sequences of jokes. Really, there they are, but they are also the other thing he taught me was that. Uh, you know, and this is from Lauren is just that you know talk up to people, don't talk try not to talk down make make it clear, but don't make it look like you're talking and that the, uh, talking down. and he really cares about story he cares about the predicaments the yeah uh, because a lot of times those things are the engines for comedy um you know too is what what is the what is at stake? Why does this matter to this guy why why is the fact that he's completely not in Austin Power's case? the difference between how he sees himself and what his capabilities really are is so vast. Did you have to watch the James Bond movies? I did, but I, I actually was a f- forced for him, I, I, or at least my influence, I think, was more to try to not parody as much as go for the style of pop art movies right. and old Italian heist movies. Right. And, uh, um, th- we, the camp. The 10th victim, you know. Yeah. yeah. Not Not. The, yeah, to, to not, but to go for, that style could be funny because yeah. it's, I guess that is camp, you know, to yeah. push it a little bit. and that, right. that, that can be. Sure. Uh, and um, he's, you know, he just, he, there's just, he just knows that stuff. And I, but then I got to go off and do other comedies, you know, Meet the Parents. Well, I and, mean, but you did three of those. Now, how did Meet the Parents come up? How did that
0: happen? I. Did, was it so, Austin Powers? Did that help get you that job? He,
2: I saw that. It actually, Austin Powers helped me not get that job at first because, uh. I found that script after Austin Powers, but uh, Universal Studios and uh, producer then uh, Nancy Tenenbaum, who had it, said, We don't want it to be silly. Like, from their minds, Austin was just pure silliness. We want this to be real. So I lost Meet the Parents and went and did Mystery Alaska. I had it. I had it for. What was while. that movie about? That's that, that hockey movie with Russell Crowe and Burt oh. Reynolds and. Mm. Uh, um, Big cast. It was a great cast. Uh, Lolita Davidovich and. Hank Azaria and Ron Eldard and all just really uh cool people Colmini. I like, was an amazing guy. It's actually probably my most personal film because it's about uh, a kind of um small town sports, the way sports yeah. can hold small towns together when right. I would go around the state of New Mexico and play, you know, play. I was I was a terrible. I was like the bench warmer on in my football team, but I I would we would go to those towns and uh and experience the life of the town wrapped around a football game. So very much like a Friday Night Lights thing. Then I saw that when I started doing the research for the hockey thing, that's how in Canada, you know, the the soul of the town can be often the hockey rink. Right. So that's the essence of it is a, a challenge to that. Anyway, it's a crazy, you know, cast, amazing experience with Russell Crowe and Burt Reynolds. I think it's, I thought it was pretty funny. It got bumped because Beloved, Oprah Winfrey's movie was... Uh, wanted the date we had and by getting bumped we were previewing really well and in terms of a release date yeah and so people um, got lost it got lost no and we came out a year later and nobody saw it <laughs> so I didn't see it that was a good it was a good experience to have a, a nice how yeah. all that,
0: I don't understand how you guys fucking shoulder that shit. Where you and obviously that's a pretty high level example of it, where you put all this time in yeah. and you know you make this amazing thing, and because of really forces out of your control, but nonetheless executive decisions just yeah. uh uh you know they they sideline you yeah and literally it, uh, it disappears yeah the it, movie and someone would have much. to go out of their way maybe because we just talked about it in that cast <laughs> to try to find me Mi- mystery
2: alaska on on itunes which is yeah. probably there oh yeah it's there yeah you know and it's hockey players find it that's that's because there's not many great but there's so many projects like that yeah. and
0: people that put years into <laughs> things
2: yeah, it's happened to me a couple times where you were surprised, something you work on a long time, just kind of, but... but I've, How do you, you know. handle that shit? In that case, I just got busy on uh, the next Austin Powers. I went right into the the. But doesn't the anyone sequel? go? What the
0: fuck happened, Jay? Oh yeah,
2: they're they're <laughs> coming at me, and I'm coming at the studios. But you you know, at that time, I had zero power, and uh, you I, I got Russell Crowe
0: calling you. What uh, happened,
2: man? Uh, Russell Crowe was probably calling the studio more than he could. Yeah, he, yeah. he knew he had more clout than right. I did at that sure. point. Sure. Um, that was after um, uh, L.A. Confidential but before Gladiator but he still was already pretty influential
0: how was Burt Reynolds nice guy
2: he was a great guy but he was in a really interesting place where he had uh, gotten the Golden Globe for Boogie Nights right? and then it had come out that he had fired his reps because he'd been embarrassed by Boogie Nights uh, and he didn't win the Oscar and the night before he was flown down to the Oscars, and he was kind of figuring out that he wasn't going to win. I think Robin Williams won that year for uh-huh. uh, *Goodwill Hunting*. Uh-huh. We were shooting on the out on the ice at like thirty below, and he was oh he got so he got very cranky, and he yelled at the at the line producer, and the, then and like a pretty pretty rough <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bit of. Uh, verbal abuse, and then he felt so bad about it, and it was all because he was—I think he just—you know—he would had—he was. A, he, this was a comeback for him. This is yeah. a huge deal. Boogie nights, right? And and he didn't realize—he he didn't realize it. Yeah, he's on our set, and he—he, he, you know, wants to be let go, and I'm shooting—you uh, know—huge pr- scene in a locker room with Russell Crowe and all these—all these hockey players. And it's the coaching scene. It's yeah. the scene where he's be supposed to. Russell, uh, Bert's supposed to be the. He's the judge who then gives Russell the strength to to you know keep going. It's a really a kind of funny tropey moment. But yeah. he gets so bent out of shape, and I actually step between them. I think I feel like it might get violent. I step between him and the line producer, and he feels so bad, and he walks back on the mark where he had been giving that yeah. speech and and we weren't filming but he starts to do a like a a long apology that gives his whole history of how he grew up with how you treat directors yeah. and we used to Robert Mitchum used to hang the director off the balcony by his ankles right. and and I you know I've been I've been in so many I've been injured so many times and I've flatlined you know from percadine and oh, like wow. was like this whole it was the most unbelievable I think it was like twenty minutes long. It's like a mea culpa? Oh yeah, and what I didn't know is the video tap guy I hit record on that. Yeah, <laughs> and somewhere uh, there's a tape of it. But um, Hank Azaria to this day can t- deliver that whole speech uh, because it was so unbelievable. It was one of those moments when you're on a was set. It good where, and it was moving. so good and but so. So much about you know uh, the, the sort of damage an actor has to go through, huh. you know, and the 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 complicated psychology of being such a huge star as Burt was, yeah, and then um, having this chance at a huge comeback, and then having it be so fragile, uh, you know, and uh, it was just it was just an incredible and then he old kind school of knew moment. He blew it somehow. I I think so. I, I you know I, I huh. that was us all. Trying to figure out what's going on, but uh, it it sounded like a heartbreaking moment. Sort of a breakdown. Yeah, but it was also we loved. uh, I remember the the guy was a hockey player, and I mean a kid. And he just said this to the whole set. To the whole set, and all of us. Now he's had us all come out. You know, now it's a big deal, and. He's actually now on that mark, lit just like he was when he was giving this other big speech. The locker room speech, <laughs> and it was just the most surreal and and kind of amazing and moving moment. But it was that, an apology. But it was an apology to yeah. the whole crew, to the, everybody. Yeah, for, for making a scene, for, for losing his shit, for losing his shit in front of all you know, in front of the whole crew. And I've we all loved the the the, the tension was broken by some, uh, you know. Hockey, the one the kid hockey player said yeah. something like at the very end, he said something like, "I think you'll be all right, Bert," or something. And the <laughs> place just went crazy. Just shit, I was laughing. It was really a, wow. So, then, moment.
0: and that was the movie before Meet the Parents. So that was the movie before the. Oh, second they took Austin, it away from you.
2: And then I, uh, while I was gone, I got a call saying, "Hey, it's from a guy at Spielberg's company," yeah. and said, "You know, we slipped that script that you told us about to Steven Spielberg." He's going to direct it now, yeah. and Jim Carrey is going to be in it, and um, which which meet the parents, you know. And I couldn't. Spielberg be- was going to direct it. Suddenly Spielberg was going to direct it. Um, he had it for about two months, and then he he decided that, uh, you know, maybe he was didn't want to he you know he'd done 1941 he was a little nervous about doing just a straight yeah. up comedy so um <laughs> still still, so, uh,
0: still a little tender about 1941 yeah, yeah. I'd
2: never quite get over that so he uh <laughs> he kind of so years it back. later i know but it's he like said that's how later. he explained it to me and that because yeah. he stayed involved even just for saying he was going to direct it for a little while yeah. when i got when i did get back on it jim, jim carrey actually yeah. through jimmy miller who i think you know yeah. was jim's Jimmy's Man, uh, Jim's manager yeah. and my manager too, and so Jimmy's your guy. Yeah, Jimmy's oh, my manager. I didn't know that. Yeah, for a long time, and uh, since then, actually, since before, since the first Austin, and he uh, he, uh, he the, having he, because he could put me with Jim Carrey, then I got to get back on it, and then Jim Carrey fell off, and I always wanted Ben Stiller, so we got Ben, and and then your your acting buddy De Niro, <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> came on, and then it, that made it go, and that was. Uh, that was my second, you know, a series of comedies. Was the, the Meet the Parents? Who played
0: day. his wife, Gwyneth's mom?
2: Uh, Blythe Danner. Yeah, Blythe amazing Danner. Amazing, Danner. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And uh, and then the, it it was until the second movie where you got Hoffman and Streisand. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. crazy.
2: You got big casts with your movies. That one nearly killed me because they they set the release date before we had a locked script. For the Meet the Fockers, for Meet the Fockers, and they the money on that. The budget on that was so big, and just they, for paying those actors, Just paying all those actors who all, of course, deserved to pay. To the first one did really well, and the second one, you it know, it did. The first one did well, and so they and and once we had the idea that we could get Dustin and Barbara as a as a counter to to as DeMiro, a couple, it's so crazy. Yeah, we um, then we knew we could get going, but. It, we started it without a third act we started it with 70 pages and uh-huh. I, I had to walk on the set every day saying don't worry, academy Award winners <laughs> you know <laughs> of of various <laughs> yeah you know i I I will we'll figure it out, but I had I did not think we were going to figure it out um, and uh, we just kept shooting and finally did figure it out. Who but, hires Randy Newman for those things? I did I I. Uh, I think
0: he just did <clears> the music <throat> for Noah Bombay. He did,
2: name. he did and it's just extraordinary. I have and to watch that movie he, it. I heard Randy's someone say crazy. that music elevated that movie and, and, it, really, and it does, it, I mean I, I like the story anyway but it, the music really is a big part of it. If you watch Meet the Parents and you see how uh, great that the kind of um, just normal, almost sitcom plot and really good acting and meet the parents. I'm really proud of the, the acting and the yeah. story, but it's, you know, it has a, it works at a level and then add Randy Newman's, uh, these beautiful choral arrangements and the, this kind of, whenever Ben Stiller screws up these, I always just say the angels would sing because he's, he's so doomed. He's like completely, uh, engineering his own, you know, humiliation. And that's when the, that's when this great Randy Newman music would kick in and, suddenly make it seem uh now when
0: you when you work with him do you give randy notes or you just let him have a pass on his own how does that work so
2: randy works a really specific way he um he he i first he just came and watched the film and was laughing really hard i that was i didn't think he i was like really he he might actually do this and uh he liked it and then he yeah he just said when you're finished let me know and he didn't a lot of composers now will be working with you along the way and mocking things up I just delivered the film. He, uh, we talked a little bit. Of, we did a spotting session. We we did a lot of temps. We we actually do a pretty great soundtrack with other people's music. Uh huh. And he said, a lot of composers don't like that because then it seems to steer them. They feel steered by the, that we're trying to impose a vibe. And some composers are asked to knock off whatever you've used in the temps. And he actually said, no, I'd like to hear it. And then he heard uh, all the music we'd put in. Some of it was Tommy Newman stuff. Some of it was, you know, other, no, his, uh, (laughs) I think he's his, cousin Tommy Newman I can't remember the direct he's a composer, there's a whole family of right? the Newmans know, yeah. are all, all yeah. David Newman and Alfred and Newman father. yeah it was Alfred yeah. the, or the uncle I, I I actually lost track of their family tree but the fact that his father was a tough guy is what he loved about this movie was the de Niro <laughs> you know hard ass thing that uh-huh. didn't that stiller has to and and also stiller you know, typically, uh, I mean, he' playing himself as a as a kind of bullshit artist and a guy who's trying to would yeah. just wiggle way through and right. when he's with his girls out of his league and blah, blah, blah. but he Randy took it really seriously and and you just give it to you just give him the film. He saw the temp. he says, "I love it. I'm not going to do anything like that." and which is awesome. Like the music like, you like had, the music we yeah. had, and he took it away, and he just sits at a piano. He called me one day. Uh, I'll never forget, he called and started playing this this melody for the song that became the, the Fool in Love, which actually got nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. And he's just playing it on the phone. I'm like, Sue, listen, this is Randy Newman's playing this song on the phone to me right now. And uh, in the end credits, Susanna, my wife, and yeah. Randy sing a duet in French of oh, this song. Wow. Uh, and they ended up doing it together on the Academy Awards as well. Oh, that's sweet. It's really cool. Yeah. Um But he elevated it in every way, and the movie just seemed smarter because that Brandy. music. Yeah. He's the best. I love oh, that guy. He's the best. I, I, I got to watch him. I'm going to do a musical with him. I pitched him a musical recently, a political, a big political musical, and I haven't gotten back to...
0: To, well, his last record was kind of a political musical. All, you know,
2: all his, yeah, the Putin song. Sure. and yeah, oh, yeah, 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 And uh, great, Those, that, what's the other record he did that had a great nations of Europe?
0: Yeah, no, I love him. I, I got to watch this new uh,
2: Noah movie. I haven't watched it yet. It's, it's good. Kind of <laughs> it's really good. There's a lot up. of good films out now. It's, uh, it's crazy, yeah.
0: It. So, like you do, like Dinner with Schmucks, a... I don't remember, I don't think I saw it, I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, no, that was another one of those films that not a lot of people saw, so you wouldn't be alone. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure either. It, it was a great cast, uh, Steve Carell and Paul Rudd, and Zach Galif- Galifianakis was really funny, and it, it tested It tested as well as Meet the Parents. It was like, so we were like, it's a great example a of falling thing. for the testing. The title is what killed us in the reviews, and uh, it was a remake of a French film, a beloved French film called uh, "Le Denier de con or something. I think is the title. Mm-hmm. A Weber film, and yeah. people we got people. The critics really hated that we were remaking this French film. And then, oh, really? So yeah. in between, though, you 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 started the um, we started the political things, yeah, recount, right? And, um, that was a big show. That was game a game big, change. Big, Those are big. Were big they were big for me. Um, Sidney Pollack brought me in to do. Um, recount because he got sick and uh that's he got the cancer yeah yeah oh did you you get to spend time with him i did and he i'd known him before he'd kind of been a mentor figure for me uh and we talked about serious films but i hadn't done any serious so once again he said just come in and he um he's a guy that i admired for just serve the story don't you know don't feel driven to and you see this in all, he had such a wide variety of films. You don't have to impose some signature style. Just, you know, I just admired that he, his style fit the story. And, and he also loved actors so much as an actor himself. I love I love him as an actor. Yeah, he's great. I love you know, him. and uh, so and Tootsie, I mean, it's just that's a fantastic performance. He, he was your buddy, and he he was your buddy, and just uh, he liked he the got, comedies. He, but he said, you know, you, you I was ta- I always talked about politics with him, and he was going to do that film, and a guy named Danny Strong wrote it, and they would started working on recount? it. Recount, yeah, uh huh. And he got sick, and um, he just all he had done in prep was. Uh, Cast Kevin Spacey and uh, you know picked a that's
0: a big show. Was that HBO? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a big, big and, thing. And
2: I, I just, he I, I told me, listen, I've got some weird news. I'm fighting this disease, and I think I can beat it, but I need you to take it over. And I was like, no kidding. All right, so I, um, I did, and he, he died <sighs> the day after it opened uh, on HBO. The day after it came out on HBO, um, but he, ha- he watched cuts and. Gave me some interesting, you know, feedback all along the way. He was amazing. He's, uh,
0: yeah. And then, but you also did a political comedy around the same
2: time. I did the campaign uh, uh, a couple years after with Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I
0: think I remember seeing that. Yeah, it was goofy. It was goofy, yeah.
2: goofy, but you know, uh, it was Will. It was just great Will stuff and yeah. Will Ferrell. So and Zach was really funny too. So um,
0: those are funny people. And then and then you did Game Change, yeah, and, the and Sarah both Sarah Palin movie, yeah. yeah, yeah, and she's Julianne Moore. Come on, man,
2: I know, I know. It's
0: a great movie, and and one both the Game Change and Recamp won a, a bunch of Emmys, yeah, yeah. So they're well received. So now you're sort of in that's your wheelhouse, and then you do Trumbo. Now, what happened with
2: Trumbo? Another film that did, a lot of people didn't see, but it was a great experience. Um, but did you, Brian. Like, yeah, with Cranston, and but yeah. did you? How did you feel about the final cut? I was okay with it. You know, I, I, uh, it was, it was, it was, there was no, it was the film we were trying to make. It was. Yeah. There was two scenes that I have to this day tortured myself one that I left in and one that I took out. Uh-huh. But I don't know if they would have made a huge difference. One I took out was this great scene with Hedda Hopper, um, uh, where she sees a soldier, uh, you know, um, where you know with um, a one-armed guy, and, uh-huh. and uh, um, you start to understand why she was such a right-wing nut, you right? Know, because she was so military, you know, soldier-driven. And then uh, the other one was one with with Trumbo uh, teaching his daughter about communism, which I left in. I cut out the <laughs> the one-armed soldier one, and I left in the. Uh, then I think now, in retrospect, I might have flipped those. Like it was two scenes that just dog you for you know for a long time. And when how you, many people did you talk to that knew Trumbo? I, his daughters were yeah. the were the the main people I talked to. The, there wasn't really anybody else. And just still as around. you, didn't, I mean, as as just a director, you know, what are you looking for
0: when you when you ask? Because like, I mean, it's on the page, right? You had this. Yeah, I
2: was the script is there? But uh, for example, they told us a story. John McNamara wrote it. They told uh, John and I the story about once. Trumbo started writing under other names. He had a pretty organized racket where he would uh uh go and pitch his his take on a story to get work. Sometimes original, but sometimes he would pitch to to be a script doctor, but he couldn't be working because he was blacklisted. Yeah. And, and so he, he would uh he would you know, use somebody else's name and and wrote Roman Holiday and The Brave One, but huge big yeah. award-winning films. And then he would also to help his other writer friends, offer to rewrite anything they screwed up. You know, if he would get, he would say, "You pay this guy just something to get him by," and it, and I guarantee the the results will be good. It may not be a tr- as good as something I would write because he was the most highly paid screenwriter of his time. He said, "But I'll, I promise you, I'll vouch for them and I'll back them up and rewrite it for you if they don't come through." Yeah. And So he had his daughters handling that whole mar- he became a market for a kind of um, i don't know what you'd call it like a, a go between from between the blacklisted writers and oh, all the studios yeah. the daughters told us all about that and it wow. wasn't in the script and it was really high pressure and high stakes and there was always huh. they, he had supposedly like six different phones and the daughters would pick them up under different names <laughs> wow it's crazy and uh, the details of that that's the kind of stuff you i always push the writers are always a little afraid Afraid to go and speak to the real people because it blows whatever concept or structure they. Oh yeah, and they, then they,
0: yeah. and then also you know then you then they're going to be bothering you.
2: Yeah, and they're going to be you have to get approval if you yeah. you know and but I it's always been worth it. Uh, it just you know just on this film we just did Bombshell uh, to talk to the women at Fox. You know we we were it would never have been as good as as we it turned out. Well, whatever the, you think well, of it, you know, and also would, all of them talked so. They talked to us when they weren't supposed to, you know. But they—that was what the movie was about. That's what the movie was about.
0: Yeah, I thought it was great. I thought oh, it, and, thanks, and, it, and it had good pace to it, and I and I didn't know the whole story, mm-hmm. and it's got powerhouse actors in it. Yeah, they so like. How women. did that story come together for you? How were you attached from the beginning to this? The the it's basically the fall of Roger Ailes, and the, you know. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't shut the studio, Fox, <laughs> the, the <laughs> yeah. network down, did, but. Yeah. But it was a big shift in culture over there. Big um,
2: it was a shift. It was, you know, it's, it takes place in a year uh, from 2015, summer 2015 to summer 2016. It starts with Megyn Kelly taking on Trump in the primaries. Recent history. Yeah, real yeah. recent. And uh, uh, pointing out all the horrible things he said about women. And it goes through to when Gretchen Carlson, who's been recording all this abuse for that whole year, ends up getting fired and then sues him. And then it's a Megan. Gretchen overlap because it's not until Megyn Kelly steps up that they're able to to take down Roger and co- talk the Murdochs into into firing him. But w- along the way, there's a lot of a very is- interesting twist and turns. I and mean, yeah. what I what I what I liked about it was just that you you don't you think you might know something about what the people at Fox are like, what those women might be like, and what everything we found out was like. Oh, there's so much more. To what get got presented in the press and what how they portray themselves, and part of it came from interviewing a lot of real people to try to get the essence of what went down. And um, we Charles Randolph wrote it. He wrote The Big Short, you know, and it came to me through Charlize. She had been offered it and wasn't yeah. sure she was going to do it. Much like the Mike Myers thing, she just sent it to me. I gave her some notes. How'd you know her? I knew her from working with her on a TV. Um, pilot idea that a, a guy had brought her and she wanted help with it and it was a com- comedic mixed tone sort of thing and we've been trying to get that off the ground we hadn't but we enjoyed the process and yeah. so she just sent it as a friend and uh i gave her notes and then she's i don't think she was thinking about hiring me to direct until so she's, she, she's, until she's a gave producer her notes. on it she's a producer and it was yeah the you know the the, the real active producer on it like she was we fell apart she acted the shit out of Megan Kelly oh she's she's an amazing actor and she transforms herself entirely both physically with a lot of makeup prosthetic stuff going on but her accent her yeah the attitude you know she really went for it but she was she uh, she was also just an incredibly good producing partner on it as well so she brought it to you, and yeah. you don't think she had the intention of you directing? Not until she read these notes. I did another, you know, like. Oh, just, what was uh, sort of what was the thrust of it? Uh, the like, main was, note was she was not sure she should do it. Uh, you know, she she just wasn't sure that she could connect with Megyn Kelly, and uh-huh. I said, "Here's why I think you sh- should try because it's a way of." talking about this issue of sexual harassment to people who are Fox news watchers who may not think of themselves as feminists or, or may even resent being asked to think about this sort of progressive idea of, idea of women standing up to power, you know, speaking yeah. truth to power. And I said, that might be a way to, I don't know, just connect this conversation across a, a much wider audience than people might have expected was possible. And maybe that's a way to uh, be a force... For change, you know, right. in some weird way, or at least be a, a, a bigger conversation. Right. And um, so that's how I pitched it to her. And she said, That sounds pretty interesting. Um, would you direct it? And I honestly, I was totally stunned. I thought she might see me as a comedy person, but yeah. I never thought she had seen me as a, someone who could direct her in a drama. And, but also, uh, you
0: know, the, I think this was, you know, doing the political stuff you did to balance the sort of politics, this is really a, about politics within a corporate structure, a
2: it way. is. But it's but it, it is trying actually to be about. It's from the women's point of view, sure. and it's actually about what is it, what's it like to be harassed by in a corporate culture that sort of seems to be part of it. But there, but it turns out, and this happened a year before the Harvey Weinstein news broke. This yeah. whole story, and, and
0: Ailes had been doing it for decades
2: and decades. But it turns out, obviously, that pattern is not just a right wing or a left wing thing there's right. was, there's man there's abuse thing. it's a man thing and yeah. that's that's a cross political thing and we tried to emphasize that but all that said there is a singularity with Trump uh-huh. and his Misogynistic bullshit, you know, and and Roger Ailes is, and, ro- and the fact that Roger's promoting Trump that whole time, the shamelessness of it, and and, and the, uh, the ego, unforgiving- the egocentric, yeah. power addicted, yeah. entitlement to right. it, uh, you know, entitlement yes. to yeah. loyalty, and even in the film we say in his mind sometimes loyalty meant sexual favors, you know, but it's also entitled to bully people or uh, just be, you know, a sort of vaguely. Culty kind of person who wants to impose their worldview on and make you have to reflect back and that world. Liars,
0: and they're such fucking liars. And and what they'll do to protect their lies, you know,
2: is destroy so much. And some of that is some of that is used to trash the women who in this story this is what happens. That as soon as someone speaks up, they there's a smear campaign. Yeah. You know, that's, that, yeah there's to, to, that. To, and then there's just this,
0: yeah. this commitment, like those scenes where he's with his wife and the stuff's coming at him yeah. and she's going to side with him, that codependency, that yeah. turn a blind eye or the, the sort of like not knowing, but knowing business, you, you know, and, and then just the, the defending the lie yeah. to the point of ruining people is, yeah. is really kind of a, uh, it's, it's malignant it's, and horrible, but it's, it's so human yeah that's the fucked up thing about it and i think that you know Lithgow plays him with a certain amount of vulnerability
2: I'm just going to say the way john goes at it uh, to not just vulnerability but also even sense of humor he was yeah. a very charismatic guy he could even be a sort of father figure to a lot of these people no, megan you saw kelly it. uh was harassed ten, 10 years before our story and she keeps working and keeps getting promoted that whole time once she she kind of gets out of his eyeline and just stays away from him and then he stops harassing her and she stays and, you know, becomes a star under his guidance. But meanwhile, he's harassing other women, you know. Right, and,
0: but there was like that weird, interesting little part of the script where you get a quick sort of summation of his backstory and why yeah. he, you know, it did kind of give him a human foundation. You know, as yeah. much of a monster as he was and as much, you know, that you wanted him to to, to get what he got. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was an element of sort of like, well, he's a damaged fucking person.
2: Well, and that's, that's what we hoped would happen is that you would see that he's an actually much better villain because he's so human and because that's what we're all surrounded by these you look at how many of these people rise to power and control a lot of our lives you know and politics or uh anything uh because they're so egocentric that they become super charismatic and fearless like kind of Entitled shameless. so much shameless then, that we yeah. are, we as a species I guess are attracted to these alpha male kind of things and I really think it is some of it is a male issue you know not that, that there are certainly women who mm-hmm. have some of the get to some of those places and and are abusive potentially but it's pretty rare compared to the number of men who are yeah and, and, and how much that overlaps them with the politics and this scene with Margot uh, Robbie and like all of it was really good now was the Margot Robbie character a real person No she's a uh, a composite representing a lot of the women who had spoken to Paul Weiss or story had told right. women their stories, but had not come out in public, and they're anonymous. And the only way to tell their stories was using a composite. Right.
0: Well, I mean, I I thought it was very compelling, and and I and I love seeing the work, and y- you. you know, and and learning about the stuff. And it was.
2: Uh, I think it's good for men to see it. You know, I I actually talk about how some men come up and say, I kind of thought I understood what this is, and it's. There's an l- empathy factor. with... Well, we're
0: the- lacking empathy because we don't live that life, and I think that yeah. you know when you see a scene like, I think the scene that with Margot and John, you know, where he's you know interviewing her, yeah, and the way that unfolds, where you see even the sort of just it, just the power dynamic, the yeah. abuse of the power dynamic, can shatter a woman, oh, and so you can see. Right. It happened. Like I think that's the larger disconnect for men is that you know you're, the woman's in a situation she's being asked to do something that may not be sexually you know contact or even um, y- you know it's it's devious. It's more of a
2: power control thing, right? right? But yeah.
0: but they don't know you know if you don't choose to not do it and you just sort of I think the pace you gave that the 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 time you gave that to happen was great because you can see you know her spirit get crushed
2: that's exactly right by the she,
0: compromise she decided to make because she didn't know how to say no and she felt that if she did she would she would then it would be detrimental to her
2: career and it's exactly what you we heard from women we talked to that he would push them a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more until they're over they've crossed a line they never thought they would cross and then you see it in her face oh man how do i i was just kind of he, he, he yeah. would do this thing like make women they called it beware the spin he would make them stand right. up and give them a right. spin and he'd check yeah. out their wardrobe or whatever and she thought that's what it was about and then it slowly gets worse and worse until it's so far and then it's like oh my god I've gotten to this position and now he has a secret you know he knows you'll keep because you won't she, she's not gonna she's not gonna want to talk about this now there's shame involved and he it's an incredibly weird creepy crafty manipulation to sort of groom someone into now being in his cult of And people. not so
0: much, uh, not that uncommon within the, the range of toxic masculinity.
2: I feel like it's surprisingly common and it's, you know, our film is not going to, It's it, there's so much more to talk about in terms of how, how widely- um, problematic. This really is. It's, sure, it's it's uh, it's the tip of the iceberg. You know, this this is just one. This and this is interesting because it was a, a year before again before Harvey Weinstein. These women came out. Gretchen Carlson is pretty amazing for coming out with no no with no expectation of a public support system like that. Not that every woman's going to feel supported by the Me Too movement now, but. Back then, no chance of that, especially against such a powerful guy. in yeah. fact, the opposite of the chance that everyone's With a just attack output, you yeah. yeah, and a powerful smear campaign sure. hit squad that will come out, oh, yeah, you. still, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, i mean i I was working on a bit about that that how there's a toxic masculinity spectrum that I think most men are on, really, I, where like it, you know that at the at the far end of it is like just basic insensitivity and 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 lack of conscious respect and that and then the other side of it is murder
2: you know (laughs) well I'm I'm, right it's not wrong I mean there's some I've been reading a lot of literature in this in this field and that's exactly right it is that it's that in sense of entitlement there's nothing more dangerous than a a a wounded ego of a person who felt they were entitled to the woman's attention Mm. and men in this case, just you know, he was punishing women in a pretty severe way. But a lot, and now there's like a general much way, a yeah. generalized sense of that with
0: a certain contingency. Yeah, yeah, I think so. With the NCEL community or, or these younger yeah. people that you know, sort of, uh, kind of communally Absolutely. feel
2: rejected by women and 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 use that to power their hatred. That is spot on. Uh, and and listen, we are we're men. We we I it, I always feel like I'm I'm. I'm glad I'm talking about it, and it definitely has changed me going at it. But women know this stuff, you know, and we're we. are we i I'm, I think uh, women that talk to us about our film are glad we're making it. But it's also like I'm always nervous about trying to explain any of that. I I can sort of uh, talk about my own position uh, yeah. about this stuff. I was my, a huge asshole. I don't think you were. I know. I I was. I, <laughs> I definitely was not <laughs> yeah. sensitive enough to what women. Yeah. Deal with mm. and and uh, you know I was I definitely remember as a young person just I don't know just not just not getting what how how what we do how we behave uh, empathy, towards e- towards em- women it's an empathy deficit yeah yeah I think that's and and particularly once it goes up the spectrum towards more narcissistic behavior which is mm. almost by definition uh, less okay, empathetic so you, know, you know conscience uh, yeah. At yeah. Deficit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's yeah. a big shift from the empathy
0: deficit to the conscience <laughs> to, deficit. to pure evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. exactly. But that's the narcissistic trip into the psychotic trip. Yeah, man. So, why why do you what is it? Because like you're making a lot of political films now, mm-hmm. and 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 they're, they they are dealing with well, there's there's tribalism, but there's also like here's what fascinates me is that how can they be so detached from the actual like the the uh, the idea of democracy and tolerance and equality and all that stuff now it's just about like winning and it's about like it's not a like i it's sort of like do they know what most people want <laughs>
2: uh, that's a good question i think i think there there is an addiction to power there's an addiction to being relevant there's an addiction to feeling like you have your hands on the levers of things uh-huh. and i think it's i think that there starts to be this rationale that okay we're we may not be serving some some liberal not the not necessarily specifically lefty liberal but the idea of liberal democracy but we'll get there we'll get back there once we re, we can once we win the the power to make the world we want it to be. It will be an American democratic founding fathers. This thing. is the the right. This is thinking their this. the right thinking. Yeah. This, that it's a it's a means, you know, the end justifying the means. But in the meantime, they're they've gotten so good at stoking fear and playing off of fear and and, and demonizing people on the left that to him, that to them it seems like an existential battle for how then shall we move forward? You know, what's who's going to be in charge of how it all goes, and and uh, let's not let those socialist, communist, uh, you lefties. know, subhuman lefties. So, in when we were doing recounts, we interviewed a lot of the real people who were involved in that story, and one of them is this guy Brad Blakeman, who had taken credit for engineering the Brooks Brothers riot, which was that was the nickname for what they pretended was a grassroots thing where local Floridians were banging on the glass while they were hand counting the votes to decide if you know in, in miami-dade to decide who who you know whether whether the election had been fair or not it shut down the vote the vote never got to happen because these the the local election people decided that it was unsafe all of a sudden and the guy who took credit for it, you know, was was this guy, Brad Blakeman? but the guy who wanted credit for it was Roger Stone. In the movie, we have uh, Tom Wilkinson playing James Baker walk into the room when he's first sent down there saying, get me Roger Stone, who was already a famous dark arts dude all since Nixon, he was part of the creep world, you yeah. know, all those guys. And when we talked to Roger later and, and we interviewed both, uh, I got to talk to Roger uh, Stone a, a couple of years ago. But, but when we interviewed Blakeman, he said, We said, why do you want credit for this? This is, this is like actual uh, unconstitutional behavior. These people are trying to get to the essence of, of, of making this election feel like it has integrity. You're trying to diminish that. What's, what's the upside of that? And he said, Dude, we won we we like winning and if we don't lie cheat and steal before the left does cuz that's all the left does is lie cheat and steal we'll lose so they believe that so they believe that they believe they've taught themselves that they've demonized you know in their minds that this uh this vast left wing conspiracy to subvert what they think is is american uh at least in these dark arts dudes yeah. minds and I think it's now. These used to be the fringe guys. Roger Stone used to be seen as a fringe guy. Yeah. But now, a lot of them had you know sure. have risen. they with know, the Roger. advent
0: of internet communities. Uh, you know, the fringe is now the mainstream. I mean,
2: the fringe is the mainstream. And Donald Trump was uh, in the. And do you remember when when I was growing up? There were the John Birchers, you know, who were always sure. seen as the crazy people. Well, that's. Donald Trump now makes that sort I mean, of appro- the, yeah the John Birchers to... and the LaRouchis. yeah exactly and now that now they're now they have the it's like it's like uh, Clockwork Orange going back and finding out oh now they're the policemen well it's
0: like it's dismantling the the they're, they they're sort of um, dismantling any real barometer of truth or fact you know through sort of uh, the persistence of of conspiratorial thinking and then kind of throwing in throwing into question any sort of documentation of anything. And because the internet moves so quickly and because so many people only take in a fraction of the facts, it's enough to mobilize brains. People are are volunteering for a pretty good brain fucking that they're not gonna
2: (laughs) recover from. All you need to spread is a little doubt, a little confusion, and a little fear as a propagandist. That's if you really want to delegitimize anything, and it's it's so easy to do that. What's hard? I, there's a, actually even a quote in uh, in All the Way, the Brian Cranston thing from a from an old congressman. The uh, LBJ that, thing. Yeah, the LBJ thing that you directed it, you know, that right. Any jackass can kick a barn down, but it takes a carpenter to build one. You know, anybody can kick down the legitimacy of something. Yeah. But to to build it up takes years of. You know, statecraft and diplomacy and and commitment to the ideals that all are held together with just, you know, bits of, of of faith in the system. They're not. They're often not stamped in stone anywhere. And once you start delegitimizing that, and it's pretty easy to do that. And that's I've been fascinated with the Roger Stones of the world, the sort of wandering dark samurai killers of institutions, is the way I look at it. Um, and it this is why i want to do kent state because kent state was the the result of just very negative fear-based rhetoric to demonize kids who were not they were called communists local uh, outside agitators uh subhuman you know brown shirt they yeah. would like use you know they would call these progressive people nazis to dehumanize them and they were local Ohio kids they were there were no none of the people who were killed or wounded that day were anything other than just commuter kids from Ohio. They weren't it wasn't Columbia or Berkeley. It was people that Nixon had called bums and the gov- local governor called you know uh, uh, you know brown shirt communists, yeah. whatever I mean, mixing mixing all his metaphors and so dehumanized those kids that the these other kids thought, oh, I'm just gonna aim and pull the trigger. 67 times it was it's the name of our thing is 67 shots in 13 seconds and killed four kids and shot you know a a total of 13 so that that's what that's the ultimate conclusion of this kind of dehumanization is people start to look at other people as uh worthy of destruction you know and that's that's so i think I, i think it's worth talking about all this stuff so i appreciate you asking me yeah, man. And it, like that, so that seems to, that that's the core of your, your, uh, I'm your curiosity. I'm interested in propaganda. I think I'm really interested in how bad ideas spread. Like what? Well, yeah. And there's people just walking around shooting Jews. Uh, yeah. Where did, how, whose idea was that? Yeah. Week. Guess what? That's, that's been a bad idea that's been spread for centuries. But the
0: dehumanization is part of it. Absolutely. Through rhetoric. Yeah. That enables,
2: you know, the worst kind of fascism and- Genocide to happen. Absolutely, that's what I love about Jojo Rabbit. I, you know, I, I don't know why that film just got to me. That that's all about that. It's all about you know uh, the way um, the way this little kid is taught to see Jews. Yeah. He even keeps a, a book of all the dehumanizing yeah, right. terminology and stuff. Yeah. So, uh,
0: and it's just like, and in, in humans are so susceptible to it when somebody leads them that way.
2: We're gullible. When you again, if you play to our fears or our insecurities about the truth you know you can you can sow a lot of uh a lot of dark we'll f- keep we'll keep doing the good work the big <laughs> work there jay <laughs> thank you mark thank Thanks, you man
0: okay folks the movie is bombshell I was a nice conversation I had with that guy he's a very decent man no music i'm on the road and i'm uh i'm just hanging out because i don't start shooting respect until wednesday i was supposed to start on monday but i I didn't but the prop guy gave me a, a little Fender Strat to fuck around with in my my hotel room but I don't have it hooked up to an amp but I think better yeah it's a moment of silence for all the sick and suffering cats everywhere and uh, a moment of uh, appreciation to all the people that take care of those cats and uh, and also a moment of reflection for people that have to you know, follow through and um, do what's right to end a cat's suffering and to people who lost cats. I say, La Fonda lives.